This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. But it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London. Here for the whole show this week. Uh, no train strikes this week, which is very nice. Uh, alongside, of course, Alex Steele in New York has been doing a fantastic job. I feel bad that we weren't together last week, Alex. I missed we're you. We're back. Reunited. Uh, US markets flying right now. European markets had a good day today and they are kind of having a better start. But I'm looking at an S&P that's up by 1.3 and a Nasdaq that's up by two, just over 2%. Yeah, I got to be honest, I don't really get it. I mean, like, I get it, but I don't really get it. <laughs> I think there's still a lot of risks in the market uh, as well. We're coming up on earnings season. It feels like every analyst note is talking about how margins have to come down and earnings estimates have to wind up coming down as well. Um, also, it feels like are we in, in the currency market, for example, I'm looking at that dollar uh, continuing lower, but now it feels like everyone thinks the dollar is going to be weaker. If everyone thinks something's going to happen, that makes me yeah. worried. Yeah, generally, the, the consensus trade kind of, Maybe maybe is a is an overreach trade. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'd say European markets have outperformed so far this year, and it's interesting today that everybody's getting very excited. It's it. Do you, do you think today's about the Fed? Like it feels to me like today's about everybody thinks the U.S. is going to have a soft landing now, mm-hmm. which I'm. I have to say I'm scratching my head about as well. Yep, and and we're seeing it in the bond market. We're seeing yep. uh, a, a strong bid come in, particularly the front end yields down down by about six basis points. So now you understand, okay, maybe that's why tech is rallying. But it feels like we're going to need a lot more data points to be able to be confident uh, in the soft landing scenario. Like, can you really have wages come down and the labor market loosen up without the unemployment rate going high? Can that really happen? I I, I don't know. Has that ever happened? Mm, there's not a lot of great history on that one. Um, I guess we'll find I, the, the CPI data. I think this week is the kind of the midway through the week is yep. going to be kind of instrumental in all of this. I'm kind of into earnings, though. I have to be honest. Uh, so, so, do you know what? For a first time in a long time, I'm actually feeling more stock specific and less macro. I, for the last couple of years, it's definitely been a a really big macro story. But I think there's a whole kind of load of single stock. I, what is it? Lululemon today mm-hmm. down really hard. And Macy's yoga pants, it, it, yoga it, pants are out, off. apparently. Yeah. Well, actually, no. And this is what's interesting about it is that their margins are off, but they're still seeing traffic in the stores. And uh, Jeffries right. had a really great note out over the weekend that said um, that people aren't going to be spending their savings. That's not actually going to happen. So these retailers or companies in general are getting hit on the cost side, and all of a sudden their top line is going to come down really, really fast, and they're going to have to cut costs really, really fast, a.k.a. layoff people. And that's sort of what we're going to see over the next few months. Labour certainly making its voice felt over here in the UK. Um, nice I'm transition. Delighted. That was good. Yeah. Nice. Tried to segue smoothly there. Yeah. Uh, no train strikes this week. No, no train strikes that affect me this week, which I'm delighted about. I'm sure they'll be back again soon. Or will they? Uh, we've had talks today between the governments uh, and the unions. Uh, the expectation is, the hope is, that they will, these will lead to a breakthrough. The unions have been accusing the government uh, of being essentially uh, the reason why we haven't seen progress being made on a number of different fronts. And these strikes potentially have the uh, the potential to broaden out. I think the teachers uh, are going to see their ballots uh, result released tomorrow. 
uh, that's obviously a huge fact. We've got junior doctors potentially joining in as well uh, as part of this ongoing narrative uh, that we've seen uh, sort of developing over the last couple of months. Let's get a sense of kind of where we are, what progress is being made or not being made. The Prime Minister obviously meeting uh, unions today in face-to-face talks. Um, to get a re- to get us a read on what is happening here, Bloomberg Strikes reporter Eamon Farhat joining us, and U- Bloomberg UK politics reporter Ellen Milligan joining me here in the studio. Eamon, let me start with you. What do we know about these talks? Is there the potential for progress? Could government involvement at senior level provide the catalyst for this to happen? Yeah, so on the rail talks, then this morning at 9.30, there were talks with the RMT, uh, ASLEF, and then the different rail kind of operators, and obviously the government. In the past, these talks haven't really given anything substantial. Today, you know, these talks seem to have gone for quite a while, and this afternoon, we got not much out of them, but we did understand that there's going to be further talks this week, so maybe there's been some kind of breakthrough. Mick Lynch, the leader of the RMT, did say that, you know, there will be some detailed proposals that will be looked at, and... To be honest, although this doesn't sound that significant in the past, these talks have led to nothing. So even just having a further meeting and kind of more talks is actually quite interesting. And whilst talks happen, new strike dates usually aren't announced. So right. this week, probably no new strike dates. So Ellen, what would be constructive from the government? Like, what would they be okay with to, in order to continue these these talks? Well, the language from the government has has softened slightly since Rishi Sunak's big speech last week. Um, they are standing firm on last year's payoff for 2022 to 2023, but they're now talking about having constructive discussions around the next pay review recommendation. Now, these are made by independent bodies. Usually, they recommend that. The recommendations are made in April, published in summer, but not implemented and actually given to public sector workers till the autumn. So there's speculation that they might bring forward that um, that pay review recommendation, give some of these public sector workers um, a pay rise for this upcoming year um, a bit earlier. And also there's speculation about possibly a one-off payment to nurses and ambulance workers um, so as not to embed inflation so much in their salary but kind of a one-off hardship um, bonus I suppose um, that there's speculation about that but there's nothing been announced yet but it seems like that might be where we're heading why the why the shift even though it is a subtle one the government has sounded fairly determined I, I, I listened to Rishi Sunak his kind of five big things that he wanted to, to talk about last week and inflation getting inflation down was a really big part of that in fact probably the most important one he led with so is, is anything happening here that is going to encourage the government to go further? Is this something that's happening within the government or is this an external force that's kind of weighing on the government? I think it's a few different reasons. Um, they're still very much defiant, for example, on transport um, industrial action. But particularly for nurses and ambulance workers, public sympathy for those strikes, I think, is over 60% for striking mm-hmm. nurses, which is significantly more than for yep. train drivers, for example. Um, Alex Wickham, my colleague, reported over the weekend that Sunak's actually facing calls from his own ministers and his government to give nurses and paramedics a more generous pay offer. Um, then you have um, the crisis that the NHS is in um, on the back of COVID, huge backlogs. There's a lot of criticism towards the government not doing enough with these um, ambulance waiting hours. Um, can be several hours sometimes, people having to wait in ambulances outside hospitals, not being able to get beds. Um, it's uh, apparently caused an increase in uh, in deaths as well as a result. So those these all, all these three things conflating, I think, yep. has added to the pressure for the government to move on um, on 
pay offers for NHS workers. Eamon, is this the distinction we're now going to see? Because it feels to me like the rail strikes are, they're about pay, but what they're really about is conditions. Whereas actually for, for nurses and the NHS, this feels like a pay issue. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think that the rail strikes have been going on for a lot longer, and it's more of this kind of um, this, this system that's, that that the government wants to change. And you know, we've had lots of different things happening over COVID and change in rail ridership, and it's a lot about conditions. Well, so the NHS, but, it really but it's is also about, about it's, they they want to put technology into place. They want to change the way that the the the, the railways operate, and this is the moment in which they feel they can do that. Whereas the NHS doesn't feel like we're trying to change the NHS here; we're just trying to pay people properly. Yeah, exactly. I think they, for the NHS, it is really about pay. That is such a big thing for them. And I think that as we're seeing more and more kind of, you know, we're going to have the, as you said, the junior doctors who are balloting. There's also going to be the physiotherapists who are going to be announcing strike dates. You know, I think the government is really seeing that there's a crisis in the NHS. More and more people are coming on to these strikes. Maybe it's time to really kind of start, you know, making that deal. And um, yeah, I'm hearing also from people who were in that meeting saying that, although, you know, people came out saying that they were disappointed in, in the outcome of the meeting, I did hear some people saying that there was some engagement on pay and there could be some movement on that. So again, as, as Ellen was saying, that kind of one-off payment is something that's being floated around a lot by the unions as well. What what kind of one-off payment do you think the unions would want? Like, what would be good enough on this point? I mean, a lot of these, um, these nurses, for example, would be you know, being paid somewhere around 30 to 40,000 pounds. So, you know, these one-off payments should be something that can look like a certain percentage over the year, you know, so it would probably be a few grand. I don't know. I couldn't say specifically. Uh, in the past, they've always strayed away from one-off payments because that doesn't always benefit everyone across the scale. But when you're trying to target the lowest paid people who are the most affected by the cost of living, then these one-off payments can work quite well. And then how will Labour play this? I, we're, we're now getting into territory as we start to bring forward some of these the, these, uh, the, these pay deals. We could be getting into the kind of the, the jurisdiction of the next parliament. Yeah, I think this year is the year where there's more. There'll be more scrutiny over what um, Labour plans. Strikes is always a tricky one. Tricky one for the Labour Party um, because they uh, their big um, funders are some of those big trade unions. I thought it was interesting that Shadow Health Secretary West Streeting kind of picked a bit of a row with the um, British Medical Association just at the end of last week last year interestingly they're one of the few unions who aren't affiliated with the Labour Party um, which may or may not have been a reason to to (laughs) kind of pick pick a bit of an issue with them. Um, I also thought it was interesting actually just before um, I came on here um, that uh, one of the Conservative MPs was talking about how in in the House of Commons how we can't us as a Conservative Party cannot have Labour having a long-term plan for the NHS to fix this issue of backlogs and, and bed blocking when the Conservative Party um, aren't. So I think West Streeting, in, in a certain sense, the Labour Party is on the front foot with his um, his plans for the NHS, although there are some really politically uh, tricky points coming up um, in terms of privatisation, suggestions of insurance. That is something that is really tricky, particularly for the Labour Party, who... Um, so, 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 could there be a possibility? I, I talked a moment ago about the fact that the government is looking to reform the railways. Are we into the early stages here of reform for the NHS? The word that gets banded around a lot is the term modernisation, which I think is a synonym for privatisation. Um, I think that the key would be keeping the NHS free at the point of delivery, but using private hospitals more 
Um, there's um, been talk recently about overhauling the GP system, yeah. perhaps getting people to pay for GP appointments. I hear a lot of this about from, from GPs that I know. Yeah, yeah. so I, I think there is more space to have that debate because the NHS is so broken. Um, but the, more space for that debate than, than there has been in previous years. But, you know, when, when uh, Brits over here hear the word privatisation, they automatically think of the US system, which for us is a nightmare scenario. Whereas <laughs> right actually, back at you, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think the communication around this, if it does go that way, is really key. Can I, can I ask a dumb question on that? What, what would be the better solution? Like, what is the ideal then healthcare system? Like... Over here, Medicare and Medicaid's a mess, and then private insurance is insanely expensive. But over there, you're now developing some kind of two-tier system, right? Didn't Sunak give an interview over the weekend? He declined to say whether or not he had private insurance, which means to me he probably does. Yeah, yeah that was really interesting. And I, he's almost creating a news story by refusing to answer it when I think other um, health secretaries and prime ministers in the past have openly admitted to having having private health care. This is the thing, that the... the um, the fact that the National Health Service is so broken, people can't get appointments, people can't even go to A&E, means that more and more people are being pushed into um, private healthcare. Um, but also more employers are helping fund people into private healthcare as well. Um, so I think the French system gets talked about a lot here using insurance. Um, I guess that's a, a middle ground between um, the UK and the US health system. But the, the I can't overstate the the importance of the NHS to Britain's identity and that is going to be something really hard especially in the run-up to the election if there's any sense of privatization around the corner that will be a real issue. America and healthcare and the NHS are not things you want to put Mm -mm. in a sentence at the same time. Eamon just walk me through the rest of the week Um, is it nurse sorry is it teachers tomorrow that that we're going to get the ballot results for what does the rest of the week look like? Yeah so yeah, so we have two huge teacher ballots of you know hundreds of thousands of teachers. One of them, the results should be coming tomorrow. Um, we have ambulance strikes on Wednesday, and then Thursday we actually do have some rail strikes. We have the TF, uh, the Elizabeth Line TFL rail strikes, so that means there'll be basically no service on that um, into Friday morning. Um, and we also have this meeting tomorrow at the Trade Union Congress, where all the unions will be there. That's the postal unions, rail unions, health unions, and there is some talk yeah. about coordinating action. So we'll see kind of what comes out of that. But yeah, ambulance on Wednesday that, I- and Elizabeth. How would that benefit the unions? I, can you just kind of walk us through the strategy? Because the rail unions have talked a lot about that. And, and, it, and yeah. I, it, sounded like a, it sounded like weakness to me that they needed the other unions to come in behind them. I think I see what you mean. I think when we get to a point now when there are so many unions who are on strike, sometimes just by coincidence, you know, you'll have a couple of different things in the same week and that puts lots of pressure on us who are commuting in or you know, seeing the ambulances and nurses on strike, making it actually coordinated in, in a proper way. As you said, it does show a little bit of weakness. You know, these these strikes and these industrial actions have to be able to stand on their own two feet. That's what McGlinch was telling me at the picket line last week. But also you can have maybe more of an impact if you start coordinating that action and disrupting people's lives a bit more. But, you know, it's, in the past, people, they have strayed away from it. So this is this could be quite a big thing if they really come out with kind of a joint set of dates, you know, next week or whatever it could be. Guys, we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. Bloomberg Strikes reporter, Eamon Farhat, and Bloomberg's UK politics reporter, Ellen Milligan. Uh, it may be the French's turn next. Uh, we're going to see uh, some details coming through tomorrow of pension reform, uh, which is always a touchy subject in France and has certainly delivered fireworks in the past. Uh, we're going to talk about what we should expect next. This is Bloomberg. 
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome back. 18 minutes past the hour. You're listening to The Cable We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele in New York. We've just been talking about strikes here in the UK and social unrest. Let's talk about what could be happening on the other side of the channel. Emmanuel Macron's government is about to unveil details of some pension reforms. Sounds innocuous. It really isn't. They're going to push the, um, the, the retirement age up to around 65. This is really toxic stuff in France. It's also a really risky time to be pushing through such moves. You've got clearly the threat of unre- social unrest already coming through. As a result of inflation, uh, remember the Gilles Jaune mass protest that we saw in France. It is a key test of French economic credibility. The Prime Minister is going to be unveiling some details tomorrow, uh, Elizabeth Bourne. Uh, so let's get a take on what is happening here. Um, Caroline Conan joins us from France to give us what we should be expecting. Caroline, uh, Happy New Year. What are happy we about to get from Mr. Macron's government in terms of pension reform? This has been tried in the past. It is very difficult. It is very difficult. He actually tried it back in 2019, but then you had the pandemic in 2020. So all these pension reform plans were abandoned uh, because of the pandemic. But uh, this is a promise that Emmanuel Macron had given his uh, electorate for the second mandate. So clearly he has to do something because uh, the pension system in France is very costly. Uh, to give you an idea, uh, last year it cost about 330 billion euros. That's nearly 14% of economic output in France. So it is by far the biggest share of all the uh, social system, the welfare state uh, in France. But it is, as you mentioned, very explosive. Uh, the Prime Minister, Elisabeth Bourne, and the whole government, really, is really working on thin ice uh, to really avoid a repeat of the Yellow Vest protest that we saw uh, a couple of years ago. Is he going to be able to do it? I mean, man, 62, even say, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to retire. Let's just make that very clear. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I mean, until they force me out the door, I'm going to have to keep working to pay for stuff. Um what, are people going to buy the 65-year age retirement? So really, raising the retirement age, which is currently 62 years old uh, in France, really is a red line for all the French unions, even the more moderate ones. So uh, back in 2019, when you tried the first reform, for example, the more moderate unions like the CFDT were like, OK, we'll, we'll go for it as long as you don't raise the retirement age. But this time, Elizabeth Bond. This is, on the set, this is on the table. We could raise the retirement age to 64 or even 65 years old. But you have to bear in mind that the system here in France is very different uh, from the U.S. or even the U.K. It's a very protected system. So you work, you contribute to the French state, and then you get a pension. That's what uh, is in the mind of most French. And in fact, 68% of the French are against raising the retirement age. This is the latest poll we had a couple of days ago from uh, EFOB. So you can imagine that the resistance to any uh, reform, to uh, any uh, time you're going to be able to retire, is, is, is very big in France. If I lived in France, I would want to retire. I'm just going to point that out as well. Why wouldn't you? What an amazing place. <laughs> but how can you um, buy things? I don't understand. I don't know. Who cares? So you if you want, I mean, if I may, she's trying to buy time by basically trying to find some alternative instead of just raising the retirement age and say, okay, this is going to be 64, 65. Uh, the, the solution is to say, I'm going to extend the duration, 
the period you need to contribute in order to benefit from a pension. So today it's around 40 years old and uh, 40, 40 years you need to contribute yeah. uh, in order to get a pension. So it's progressively going to be 43 uh, years of contribution for uh, those born after the 1970s. So, of course, I'm part of them. Um, and uh, clearly this is a way to not say I'm going to raise the retirement age because otherwise everybody is going to be down in the streets. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. A, I was born in the 1970s. It's a great, great decade. Um, <laughs> so was I. So That's true. Uh, great Good decade, team. as I say. Um, so so what are the... Ch- we're, we've got huge amounts of strikes over here in the UK at the moment, Caroline. Uh, is that what we're heading for this summer in France? It is possible. As soon as, as, soon as this January, actually, because unlike in the UK, uh, you didn't have any many big strikes in December in France. You had one day of strike for the SNCF trains, but that was not very followed, not, not, not at all like you saw in the UK. Uh, this time, the unions are already meeting uh, straight after the announcement uh, tomorrow. In two weeks' time, the government is supposed to present the reform in a cabinet meeting. If the unions don't like it, they're clearly planning a big protest, a uh, big national uh, strike uh, as soon as the end of the month, even probably by the next two weeks. So uh, clearly, they have warned, like the more radical unions, the CGT union has warned that the strikes could actually be similar to the 1995 protests uh, in France. That was also about a pension reform that paralyzed the country for months. There was no train, no metros for three weeks at the time. Okay. I'm going to Paris in July, so let's please get this worked out uh, before I go there. Um, If this doesn't happen... What is the what is the result for the French government in terms of just how much money they're going to have to continue to pay in pensions? Like, what what does that then look like? So, uh, as I was mentioning, the uh, pension system costs around fourteen percent of uh, economic output. Um, so, um, obviously, the demographic doesn't help uh, because of uh, you know the the younger generation uh, being like not enough people to really pay for this pension system uh, forever. But uh, they're going to try and find some kind of um, loophole, some kind of middle ground, because really what they need to pass this reform, even if you have some protests in the street, is uh, for it to pass in Parliament. And the problem, as you remember, is that Macron lost his majority last June, so he's going to try and find some middle ground with the Republicans. And in fact, the Republicans, you may think, oh, they're going to look for some more right-wing alternatives, but they want to be looking like the good guys in here. So Mm -hmm. they're supporting, for example, a minimum pension of 1,200 euros a month for everyone, not Mm. even if you didn't contribute for for 43 years, even if you uh, didn't have like such a well-paid job. Uh, So so this is the middle ground they're going to try to find in order to to pass this reform and really finance the system yeah. in the long term. 28 years. I'm thinking I can retire in 28 years. I'm just putting it out there to everybody. Good talk. Caroline, thanks a lot. Good to talk to you. Caroline Quinan uh, joining us. All right, coming up, we're going to take a look at U.S. markets and talk about some job cuts over at Goldman. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Evening. You are listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. All right, let's get a quick check in here on U.S. markets because it's a doozy of a day. Uh, Volume up. S&P is up by 1.2%. The Nasdaq outperforming up by over 2%. Uh, 
obviously no surprise sectors within the S&P doing well, no shocker, is technology. Um, in the individual names, you're seeing Tesla, NVIDIA, AMD, Match Group, all those names uh, doing quite well. In the bond market, you're seeing a nice pickup pretty much all across the board. You get yields lower in the two-year by about uh, six basis, four basis points now, I should say. Dollar continuing to also roll over. That's the macro view. But on a micro level, there's still some concerning areas, and that comes to retail. Lululemon is lowering their margin outlook. They still see traffic in their stores, but it's their margin issues that uh, are presenting a problem for them. That stock getting hit. Macy's also not doing so great today. They're forecasting fourth quarter net sales are going to come in at the low end of its previous outlook. And more concerningly, the CEO, Jeff Gannett, said that consumers will most likely remain under pressure in 2023. Um, their inventory is pretty clean. like That's the good news. Um, but it's the outlook for the consumer. And they were the ones that were doing really well, like Macy's, Bloomingdale's. They were the ones that didn't have the discounts, Guy. This is your favorite subject, isn't it? No, no. Okay, do I get more excited about oil or retail? <laughs> do you want me to answer that question? Yeah. I, I think retail. Really? I think, so I think recently retail, That's but maybe this is just the Christmas period. Maybe. I think I think it's become so I think retail has become much more tactical for you in a way that it wasn't before. True. I think you, I think you see opportunities. I think you're 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 kind of I, I yeah. I'm just. I'm like I'm, I'm like a retail trader now. You, so that's so that's, that's what it's okay. You're becoming yeah, precisely. You are you are a retail day trader. That with, with a with a very limited budget now, which I didn't spend last week. So that budget rolls over. So that over. rolls over. So that becomes quite a big number now. Uh yeah. I mean, but you know, maybe it's even a maybe I save for two months and buy something really fancy. Yeah, that's that's got to be the way to play it. I mean, but I don't then know. you're going to miss out on all the opportunities that are short term, uh, tactically short term available. But I mean, but longer term, do I make a better investment the other way? I don't know. Also, I don't know. if I played the market, I, w- I would be terrible at it. So this could also go very, very wrong <laughs> for me. <laughs> I would get so much pent up demand in my soul for buying stuff that all of a sudden I just go crazy on a shopping spree. But I think so. But I think it's a genuine. So it's it's really interesting. So talking about Lululemon a little bit earlier on talking about the fact that people are still it's kind of where is the pressure for these businesses is it coming into the revenue line are people spending less or is it all margin i mm-hmm. it's i think it's fascinating to see what's going on it looks like for now it seems to be all margin you're just managing your cost basis but then once that top line hits then you're getting squeezed from both both directions and then how how much longer can you really hold on to labor for example um speaking about labor goldman sachs reportedly laying off 3,200 workers. That's the most in a while. It's pretty severe. Um, it's because Marcus has really just drained money out, out of Goldman. So let's get to the reporter who completely crushed this one. Uh, Shri Dhanarajan uh, joins me now in the studio. First of all, great reporting. Um, what are people at Goldman saying about this after this has come out over the last 24 hours? Look, it's it's a tough one, right? Uh, 3,200 jobs in one go. That's not the type of exercise Goldman usually undertakes, even though they talk about this annual underperformers getting cut from the firm. At this scale, it rarely ever happens. Even during the financial crisis, the great financial crisis in 2008, Goldman had to cut about the same number of people. At that time, it was almost 10% of their firm. Now it works out about 6.5% of the firm. With respect to the firm reaction, the one thing to keep in mind is the only little bit of good news here is and as recently as a couple of weeks ago or a few weeks ago, the thinking was this could be as many as 4,000 people. 
So if the final number is actually landing up around 3,200, it is at least not as bad as people had feared. Of course, at a human level, even one job is one job too many, and at 3,200, there will be a lot of affected employees. Where in the firm are these are these losses going to come? Look, and that's that's the thing that uh, is is causing a lot of pain at the firm. Is this is pretty much across the board. It's yes, we talk about there being losses in the consumer division, there being expense spent there, but that's not the only place where the hurt will be felt. You've had a year where deal making fees have gone down. You've had a year where asset management has not been able to shore up revenues like it was doing twelve months ago. And when these big Units are not performing, and they're worried about an uncertain 2023. Management's decided to take this pretty much across the board. In our reporting, we say more than a third of the cuts will come from the core banking and trading units. That Those are the crown jewels well, also, of Goldman Sachs. Weren't those the guys that did well? They invest in banking 50-50. But, but in terms of the trading, I mean, how would I feel if I was a trader and I, my, my job might be on the chopping block because of Marcus cost overruns? Yeah, and look. That's, that's going to cause that, internal resentment, No. And it has been causing that. That's mm-hmm. the kind of conversations you're seeing inside the firm. Trading revenue at Goldman Sachs this year will come in at at least 15% higher than last year. That is a or 14% higher than last year, 25 billion, more than half of the overall firm revenue. That's a big number. Even a few months ago when we were talking about the discussions around year-end bonuses, we heard that even the trading division will see his bonus pool cuts, which goes contrary to the Wall Street mantra of pay for performance. Performance has been good. Pay they would have expected for it to go up. Leadership will tell you, unfortunately, pay for performance doesn't mean pay for your division's performance. Pay for performance is across the firm. And when profits are estimated to be down 46%, the pain and the blame has to be shouldered by everyone. Are we going to be seeing tech jobs go? Because th- these are companies that, I, I, you, you listen to Jamie Dimon talk about how he sees sort of JP Morgan developing. Technology is a really big part of it, and they hired heavily. Yes, <laughs> it's a short and simple answer. There's There's been big growth on that front. They will certainly make a decent chunk of the jobs that are getting cut. Um, and look, we, we talk about the expenses on the consumer side, but don't forget Goldman's headcount has grown by 34% since David Solomon took over. He took over in October 2018. The headcount today, 49,100 at the end of September 30th anyway, was 34% higher than what it was on December 31st, 2018. So that's a big jump. You don't see that kind of a jump. That's not the normal pace of headcount growth. So you've obviously had that. On top of that, you've also gone through a period during the pandemic where they mostly set aside this yearly exercise of weeding out the underperformers. So there is some pent-up excess from there. So when you add all these factors and all this pessimism about what will happen in 2023, you get to a situation where the final tally creeps up to 3,200 jobs. So bonus season is upon us. This headline, bonuses should start coming down, you know how much you didn't or didn't get. What kind of talent flood out are we going to see after bonus? It's an interesting dynamic, one that uh, actually the Goldman Sachs CEO, David Solomon, touched on. He was very precise and forthright on the point that the war for talent still continues, maybe not at the same pace as 12 months ago, but there it is still a hot labor market is how he sees it. However, realistically speaking, if you're getting let go from a bank, which is safe to assume if you're not considered the cream of the crop, is it reasonable and practical to assume that you'll be immediately be able to find another similar job right away? It's hard to imagine that's going to be possible in this environment. Most other banks may not be shedding as many jobs as Goldman Sachs, but they surely aren't 
out there aggressively hiring. All right, Shri, really appreciate it. He literally ran here. I saw him run to the studio. Um, Shri, thanks a lot. Really great reporting. Thank you very much. Um, Shri Nanarajan joining us. He is a senior banking and financials reporter uh, for Bloomberg. It's going to be really interesting uh, a couple weeks, particularly as the bank earnings start to come out as well, what they say about cost uh, cutting, cost reduction, and of course, uh, that war for talent that Shri was just speaking about. Um, Speaking of war, let's go to Lululemon. We'll talk about cost cutting there. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Let's get back to that retail story because I'm apparently a retail trader at this point. Um, Poonam Goyal, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior U.S. Retail and E-Commerce Analyst, joins us now. Poonam, there's a lot to parse through here. One, you got Lululemon um, revising their margin outlook uh, lower, but they say that sales are holding up. Uh, Macy's, though, saying that their holiday sales missed as uh, expectations, but and they're looking at a weaker consumer now in the, for the rest of 2023. What did we learn over the last 12 hours? Well, we've learned that the consumer is choosing where and how they want to shop. And the reason that Lululemon um, is still able to deliver 25% plus sales in the fourth quarter is because people still want activewear. They want to wear athleisure clothing, and Lululemon, the brand, still resonates well with the shopper. Macy's, on the other hand, may be challenged with just inflationary pressures that are weighing on the consumer. And, you know, the consumer is still spending, though, across the board. It's just they're choosing where and how they spend. So I think Macy's is dealing with a little bit of that right now. And promotions have been high across retail. Not a big surprise uh, when we see that across mass retail. Lululemon, I was a bit surprised that their gross margins would be down in excess of 100 basis points because they're typically not that promotional. And they said they didn't need to be, but apparently they did. Is this a post-pandemic story? This? uh, Yes and no. I think they're still brand strength for Lululemon. I I think people are changing the way they wardrobe and casual and athletic wear is a staple part of everyone's or most people's wardrobe going forward. So I I think that Lululemon still has plenty of runway, both domestically and internationally. So how does that then, how people spend their savings, I feel like is the biggest question. What do you think retailers are, are planning to do? do? Do they keep their inventory super lean? Because one thing that Macy's does have is nice, clean inventory, right? Do they keep their inventory lean and then see what the consumer does? Do they try and diversify into the products that people still want? Like, how do you do, deal with that right now? You, you need to try to keep your inventory lean. And I think part of the reason why Lululemon's margins dropped so much is probably a bid to keep inventories lean. Their inventories were up at the end of third quarter, 85%. So I, I'm waiting to hear what they say. They're at a conference this week. But if they talk about inventory levels, I expect them to say that they're better than they were at the end of third quarter. And in terms of, you know, keeping inventories lean is key for retail. Every retailer, every brand should try to do that. But, yes, you want to sell products that people want. Macy's is a big department store. It sells a lot of things. You know, it sells apparel. It sells cosmetics. It sells home. It sells kids. It sells shoes. There's a lot going on there. So not only it's with the categories, but it's the brands, right, the brands that people want to shop. And do people still want to shop big stores or do they want to just go to the brand that has what they want and shop, you know, 
go to Sephora for your cosmetics, go to Lululemon for your activewear, go to Nike when you want some sports clothing. Like the people have brands that they like and do they want to shop with the brand or do, do they want to go to this mass merchandiser? How, how important is price going to be in terms of the decisions that people make? It, Very I, I important. Up, I, I bring up example A. A stands for Alex here. How, how important <laughs> is price? I, I think price is very important, especially if you have a commoditized product, right? Um, if, if there's no branding to it that the customer absolutely needs to get that product from that store, from that brand, then they're going to shop around and price is going to matter. And the only way to hold prices steady is really to be lean on inventory. We saw this through the pandemic. Retailers were able to sell largely at full price because there wasn't enough inventory in the marketplace. But today there's too much inventory. So there's discounts that are happening and it's pushing price down, even at retailers that may have lean inventory. Because if if your neighboring brand is selling at 30, 40% off, it's going to be hard for you to take full price on any garment. It's so true. I think I think that face care is the only thing that I will spend full price on because I have to. I think everything else to me is then discretionary. Um, real quick, Poonam, one company you're watching next year to drop? Uh, we are looking at really most of most of retail right now, but the one company I'd say I'm watching for is the resale companies to see how well they do in this environment. She's like all so of retail. They- all of it. Okay. Punim, thanks a lot. we got to leave it there. Punim Goyle of Bloomberg Intelligence. All right. Coming up, we're going to go down to Mexico City to preview Tres Amigos. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. Uh, it is called The Three Amigos Meeting. It is taking place in Mexico. The Mexican president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, AMLO, is going to welcome the U.S. president, Joe Biden, uh, and the Canadian prime minister, Justin Trudeau, to Mexico today. It is a summit uh, that is aimed at solving a number of big issues right now. Maybe some positives can come out of this meeting. Migration is a huge problem for the US president. Drug struggling, smuggling uh, is a huge pres- a problem for the president. He's struggling with the drug smuggling. Maybe we'll get that <laughs> sentence right. Um, and it's going to be it's going to be a a meeting that focuses largely on those two subjects. But in all of this, I think there may be also a huge opportunity. There is a lot of reshoring taking place. Mexico could be a big beneficiary of that as we see supply chains being shortened uh, and brought back to North America. So let's talk about what we're going to be seeing here, what we can expect out of this, how this meeting will go. Bloomberg's Amory Hordern has travelled with the president. She joins us now from Mexico. In, in terms of what the US president wants, needs to get out of this, where does the focus lie, Amory? Well, for the U.S. president, especially on the heels of coming from El Paso, Texas yesterday, which is the border, uh, a border community, he really needs some more work with Mexico when it comes to migration, but also the drug smuggling. Um, this is something that he has just been absolutely hammered with from Republicans, and it's also a huge issue politically and really the ground zero of the issues for Republicans going into the 2024 election. So this is where he'd want to make the most inroads. Already what we've seen ahead of this trip is the U.S. strike a deal with Mexico in terms of some parole from some migrants that they don't go to the proper channels into the U.S. that Mexico would then absorb them and they could not claim asylum at the border into the U.S. And then of course when you look at drug smuggling, I mean Admiral Kirby on 
Friday talked about how uh, at the border, 20,000 pounds of fentanyl was seized. And fentanyl, so many politicians have talked about this because it's not just highly addictive, but it's lethal. And this has been, we've seen rising numbers of not just addictions, but leading to deaths in America. And Mexico is really going to point to the fact that they recently apprehended and brought into custody El Chapo's son, who the U.S. alleges is a massive trafficker of fentanyl. So those are going to be where the biggest issues lie. Um, what did President Biden going to the border before going to Mexico do to hurt or help these conversations? I think in terms of viewing this in terms of domestic politics is really where the president was, um, I would say, hurt by what he did. Because even though he went, Republicans said, you know, in their terms, finally he went to the border, they think it's not enough. Immediately when he touched down in El Paso, he was greeted by Governor Abbott with a handwritten letter which said, you're $20 billion too short and two years too late. Republicans do not think he is doing enough about the border, and they said that he has not prioritized this. Maybe the timing, you know, is because we're after the midterm elections and now he can put a little bit more attention to it. But the president and Democrats will tell you that there's only so much the president can actually do. If he really wants to enact real change, he needs Congress to be on board. Uh, We should also note, though, you know, we're talking about Republican criticism. There are Democrats and human rights groups that have been also um, taking aim at the president for this new parole policy, this new migration policy from these four big countries, Venezuela, Haiti, uh, Nicaragua, that, and Cuba, where we've seen a lot of migrants, because they say that this really upends asylum laws. So if you're an individual of those countries and you don't have, say, family members or financial back in the United States and you show up at the border, you cannot claim asylum. And they think that that's totally unacceptable. So it's a very tricky line for this president to walk. Where's the business opportunity here, Amory? Well, Guy, you've been talking about it. It's the nearshoring in Mexico. And I was looking into some of the data from the Mexican Central Bank, and I was pretty shocked. Uh, I don't know if you guys knew this, but in terms of one of their biggest exports in the United States, it's been boats. They're up 266% boats from Mexico into the United States. Mexico wants to be a place that U.S. businesses can look to instead of looking to China or other markets in the Asia-Pacific. This is something that AMLO wants to talk to the president about. He wants to be a hub for components of the semiconductor manufacturing that the president is really pushing on U.S. soil. So this is where the opportunities that lie, 43 countries, especially when we're talking about the U.S. and Mexico. But also when it comes to trade, there's huge tension, mm-hmm. specifically when it comes to energy policy. Um, to that point, you know, Europe's not happy about the IRA. How, did Can- <laughs> how does Canada and how does Mexico feel about it? So this is a great question because in about 30 minutes' time, I'm going to be sitting down with Canada's trade minister, and I'm going to ask her about this. So when it comes to the IRA, it's been difficult for Canada to really fight against because the United States is just a behemoth. So for them, the big question is, what are they going to do in terms of their response? They haven't actually decided what their response is going to be. So they need to decide where they could potentially help their own companies. They're not happy about it, um, but they're not talking about it the way we saw Emmanuel Macron talk about it when he came to the United States. They understand why the U.S. is doing it, and they understand it's going to be difficult to compete, but they're still figuring out how exactly they're going to do that part, the competition part. 
Amory, has there been any reaction to what happened in Brazil that you've seen in Mexico? How are the Mexicans reacting to it? Well, we really got a joint statement from AMLO, Trudeau and Biden about what happened in Mexico. You know, they say they condemn it and they want to make sure that they are supporting President Lula. Uh, And we've heard from almost every government around the world, I would say, condemning what was going on. And this has, for the first day of the summit, you know, Trudeau hasn't actually touched down just yet. But for the first day of the summit, this has been all the questions pointed at the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan. What is your response to Bolsonaro? Because he was residing at the moment in Florida. And you already have a few Democratic lawmakers like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from Florida and Joaquin um, Castro from um, Texas coming out and saying the United States should not be giving him refuge. So far, the administration says there's been no such request yet from the Brazilian government. Anne-Marie, great reporting. Really appreciate it. We'll be hearing from you in the next couple of days. Anne-Marie Hardern. Hope you enjoyed the show. This has been The Cable. Happy Monday. We will see you tomorrow. This is Bloomberg.